You know, I'll never forget the night that we were sitting there in that small group session. It's one of the reasons why we believe in small groups, because people can connect uh, on a more personal level. They can have conversations, ask their questions. And I felt, you know, it really wasn't so much scripted, but I felt like, you know, this would be a time to not just share how to be saved and what it means, but I gave people a chance to actually do that, to receive Jesus into their life. And um, after the, the class was over, um, Neil and Missy came up to me and they said, hey, we just did that. I said, like, like what'd you do? Like, I, I didn't know, because, you know, God's man of faith and power, I couldn't connect the dots. And they said, no, we, we, just, we just committed our lives to Jesus, just like you talked about. I was like, yeah, man, high-fiving all around. It was really a great time, but he, he nailed it. That's really what we're all about. So if you're our guest today, man, we are so glad that you're here. You should know that our heartbeat is for you. There are a lot of people that came before you into this place, and they've prayed for you. They've prayed for these seats that you're sitting in. They've prepared. They got ready to sing. They gave money. They gave their hours to make it happen. They got this place ready for you, and we're glad you're here. And our hope is that every person in this room, whether you've been following Jesus a little bit of time, a long time, or not at all, that you'll take a step towards him today. Well, let me tell you something. When I first got married, um, Jill and I were not all that wealthy. In fact, we were flat out broke. We, we were two college kids. We went against the stream. And we got married while we were still in college. That, that, that's not the point of the message. Don't do that. That adds some ch- certain challenges. Although God seems to have done okay in our lives. But when we first got married, um, one of our first tasks, like as we were engaged getting up to the day of marriage, was to find a place to live in. And so Jill was traveling uh, with our school doing some stuff, and I was given the task in that week to narrow down the list of options for the apartment that we were going to rent. Well, I found this apartment um, out on a country road. We were in southeast Tennessee, and when I say out in the country, I mean out in the country. This was one of those places where you get off the highway and you get on the county road. And then you get off the county road and you get on the, the little by road, which is still paved. And when the paved road ends, it's gravel. And at the end of the gravel road, there's some dirt. And the, the, that's kind of where we were. I mean, we were, we were out in the middle of nowhere. And the, the, it was getting late in the day and there was no electric on at the apartment. But I could see, I, 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 I could see clearly this was the perfect place for us. And so I'm going around with the real estate agent looking, looking at the place, and I'm thinking, this, this is great. I could just imagine us beginning our life there. It would be fantastic. And as we're standing there talking in the living room, the lights, the lights go down. And so sure enough, right there, we walk out to the car. I sign the contract, pay the deposit, because, you know, I'm that way. I'm just kind of impetuous that way and impulsive. And it, it seemed like a great place. Well, I get the key, and the next morning I come out, because there's no electricity, I come out, and I, I go into the house, and I'm like, this is awesome. I start cleaning, call the electric company. They get the power turned on. Well, the next morning, I thought I'd get an early start. So I go out before the sun comes up. I walk into the place, and I flip on the switch. And in the kitchen, roaches were everywhere. Oh, it was terrible. Can you feel them like right now crawling up your skin? They were everywhere. And as soon as I turned on the light, and what I didn't know is like for every one roach you see, there's like a hundred you haven't seen. And Jill had three days till she was going to be back in town. And I thought, oh my goodness, I haven't even begun and I've ruined it already. I mean, this is not. And so I called up some buddies, called up my friends, called up my mom and dad. I was very concerned about what was going to happen. And I thought, you know, no matter what happens, I can't let my bride, my bride-to-be experience, you know, this, this, uh, this ugliness that, that's in front of us. Well, I started off telling you that story because today I'm wanting to do basically what I did in the kitchen that morning. I want to turn on the light on a subject that really I think is like one of the cockroaches of the spiritual world. It's one of those things that tends to operate in the dark underneath the view of most people and you don't really see it sometimes until somebody shines the light in the middle of the activity. 
And that, that's what we're going to do. By the way, this wasn't the only time that we struggled with cockroaches in our, in our marriage. When we moved down to Florida and I was going to seminary, do you realize that in Florida they have cockroaches that fly? They call them palmetto bugs, but don't let that name fool you. It's just a cock, cockroach with wings. And they're like three inches long and they'll like hiss at you. I'm not even kidding. I remember we, we had some of those in our house in Florida, like everybody does. You can't get away from them. You know, we're pretty clean people. Don't let this fool you. But we, we, I remember one time going in, and there were some, like, palmetto bugs in the house, and I turned on the light. But unlike Tennessee, where they, like, all go scurrying, these, these things, they look at you like, yeah, what are you going to do? I mean, that's kind of, that's, that's kind of like, it, it was bad. And so I, I don't know what your attitude is today, but I hope that you come with a willing attitude. We're going to look, if you have your scriptures with you, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 in your Bible is a powerful book. Go ahead and turn there. If you're sitting there, a neighbor with the Bible, go ahead and, and uh, turn there. Listen, I'm hoping you'll develop a relationship with your Bible. It's why for the last three weeks I've been trying to say, go ahead and turn in your Bible. Yeah, you don't have to bring your Bible to church, but it would make sense to. It would be the right thing to do. It's the kind of thing that leans forward because when you get in the habit of opening up your pages like this, it kind of builds a relationship with you and the book. I, Again, it's not eternal destiny on the line for this kind of thing, but it's very important for followers of Jesus to be connected to the Word of God, and the very action of turning the pages help you to do that, and that's why I want you to turn there with us. But if you, for some reason, don't have your scriptures, you can uh, follow along with me on the screen behind me. And I have all of them here on my Kindle, but for me, still going through the pages of the scripture is a powerful exercise. Romans chapter 8 is one of those powerful passages in the Bible. It's one of those go-to places. In fact, if you've been at church for any length of time at all, you've heard somebody refer to this, even if you didn't know it was from that passage. It's kind of like, well, Psalm 23, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. Have you ever heard that one? That's Psalm 23. People kind of, it's a go-to place for people. People talk about John chapter 3, for God so loved the world. Hebrews chapter 11 is the, the roll call of faith. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Well, Romans Chapter 8 is a powerful passage in the life of the believers, and I think it operates like a light in the middle of the night while the cockroaches are working, because it's going to deal with a couple of issues that I think when you get a handle on it will set you free. I think it will literally drive the bugs out. I think they will go scurrying. And what we're going to do for the next three weeks as we focus on Christ alone and get our hearts ready for Easter, we're going to go back to this passage three times. Romans chapter 8 this week, Romans chapter 8 next week, Romans chapter 8 the week before Easter, and then we'll come to Easter and celebrate all that the resurrection of Jesus means for us and invite our friends and make sure they get to hear about him as well. But I want us to start there because I want to show you something that I think, well, I think it will set you free. And so what I want to do right now is just read the passages. We're only going to go four verses in and uh, take a look at them together. All right, here's what it says. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now... No condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul's going to make a comparison between life with Jesus and life on your own. Letting Jesus make you right before God or trying to earn being right before God by following a list of rules or a list of laws. You can either receive his grace and accept his perfection into your life, or you can try to live up to perfection on your own. So he begins, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, the law of grace, the law of God who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death, or the law of trying to keep rules. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering 
And so he condemned sin in his own body, in his own flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, for the next few minutes, we're going to unpack these words. And he's approaching it. Paul is the writer of this epistle to the Christians in Rome. He's approaching these words from a theological perspective, trying to get people to understand just how powerful grace is in our lives. And if you don't understand that, let me back you up. If you wanted to, you could turn in your Bible back one page to Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, you have the Apostle Paul engaging in a mental argument with himself. He's brutally honest. He's one of those guys that looks in the mirror and assesses appropriately what he sees. In the end of chapter 7, in your Bible, in my Bible, here's what Paul's dealing with. He says that there's often times in my life when I know God wants me to do something. When he wants me to press in, when he wants me to engage, when he wants me to move forward on some issue. It's the good I want to do. And then he says, honestly, but I struggled to do it. And then he says, conversely, there are times in my life when I know I'm supposed to avoid, hold back, not go there, build a boundary, not move forward in that issue. It's the bad I want to avoid. And ironically, I find myself very consistently struggling with wanting to go there where I know I don't need to go. And so he says, I have this war going on within me. The good that I want to do, I'd find myself not doing enough. And the evil and the bad that I want to avoid, I find myself engaging too much. And then he says, so who will rescue me from this internal struggle that seems to be bringing me to death? Who will rescue me from this body of death, this internal struggle that is not bringing life to me? That's how chapter 7 ends. And so you turn the page and he begins to under to unpack what for him is the wellspring of his joy. It's the foundation. It's the fountainhead of all that he understands about life with God. I'm sharing this with you today because I want it to be light in the middle of your dark kitchen. (laughs) See, I think that a lot of us are asleep spiritually. And what I mean by that is not that you're lost without God. I mean that the active presence of God at work in our lives isn't as active as it needs to be. I think that some of us are kind of going through the motions of our Christian lives and we haven't fully grabbed hold of all that God has for us yet. We don't understand just how rich his love and grace is, just how powerful his spirit is, just how freeing it is to walk with him. We've let other things distract us. We've been pulled in other directions. We're torn by internal struggles, conflict of the will, conflict of what we know versus what we do. And Paul comes to us in the middle of talking about those kinds of things. And he says, you need to grab hold of just how powerful and awesome Jesus is. Because that reality, whether you're 14 years old today, whether you're 44 or 74 years old today, the reality of the power of Jesus Christ and his work in people's lives will change everything. It will be like turning on the light in the middle of the night. And all the little creepy crawlies go scurrying because they can't stand up to the power of this light, to the power of this truth. So Romans chapter 8 begins with a powerful sentence that I think you should probably, like I should, commit to memory. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. This book 
Um, this chapter, Romans chapter 8, begins with the idea that there's no condemnation. And by the time we get done with it, by the end of it in a few weeks, you're going to discover there's also no separation. The power and the love of Jesus is magnificent. It's large. It holds on. Now, there are two pieces to this phrase. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so I could spend half my time talking about no condemnation, and I could spend the other half my time talking about in Christ Jesus. I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to spend 45 se seconds talking about in Christ Jesus. And I need to make this clear to you because some of you in the room, this is the truth you need to hear. I think that the bulk of us are on the other side of the equation, but I wouldn't be being true to the gospel if I didn't at least share this so, with, with clarity so that you could hear it. See, Paul begins by making the truth that there is no condemnation, which we all love. We're like, yeah, man, we're free. No condemnation. Awesome. That, that's so cool. But then he makes it clear that apart from Jesus, there is plenty of condemnation. <laughs> There's no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. It reminds me of the story of Noah's Ark. In, in your Bible, I've been teaching the Old Testament on Wednesday nights. Over 10 weeks, we're meeting for six sessions. And so we dealt with a little bit of, about Noah's Ark. Here's the basic premise of Noah's Ark, is that if you were in the Ark, you were safe. Not in the Ark, not safe. I don't know if you had Noah's Ark explained to you, but God directed Noah to build an Ark, and it would provide for him and for all that would be willing to go into the Ark safety for the coming calamity. God promised that it would rain on the earth, that he was going to do a washing and a cleansing. And if you wanted to avoid that kind of challenge, then you got yourself in the ark. And so Noah spent 120 years, the Bible tells us, a long time, building the ark and preaching for people to receive the grace of God. Please, he would beg them, please come into the ark, please come into the ark. You got you to get into the ark. And then it begins to rain. And the Bible says that Noah gathered his family, they went into the ark, and the Bible says, here's the scary phrase, God shuts the door. Now, the good news was, if you were in the ark, God had shut the door. He had protected you from all the calamity outside, all the difficulty outside, and you were safe. You were going to ride over top of that storm. Oh, it'd be bumpy on occasion. You'd wonder what it was going to be like, but you were going to be safe. The bad news, of course, was if you're not inside the ark, there are some challenges. See, I think that our culture loves the first part of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation. It's the last part we choke on. It's the in Christ Jesus. And yet this is why Easter is so important. Because Jesus came so that whosoever will, the Bible says, it's available to all who will. To everyone who wants to, whoever wants to can grab hold by faith of what Jesus offers in this world. But that's not really what happens, is it? See, some of us think that, I'm just going to be just a few moments here, that we could shack up with whoever we want to shack up with, and we're going to be perfectly fine with God because there's no condemnation. Paul's going to spend the rest of this book telling you that's not true. You can't do whatever you want and be perfectly fine with God. It's not the way it works. That's not the in Christ Jesus part that facilitates the no condemnation. And you can't leave your wife for somebody younger and who's more sensitive and who gets you and expect that everything's going to be just fine. There's now no condemnation. And you can't cheat a little bit to make a little bit more money. And you can't sleep with whoever you want and do whatever you want and hold on to the truth that there's no condemnation. That runs counter to the entire message of Jesus. Jesus came to free us from those kinds of things, not by allowing us to continue in them and not experience their consequence, but freeing us from them. 
and then removing the guilt associated with those things. That was the list I gave. You have your own, I have my own. He came to free us from the guilt associated with them, even as he frees us from those activities. Oh, there's no condemnation as long as you are in Christ Jesus. When God gets you in the door, you're going to be fine. You may not figure it all out. It may not make perfect sense to you. It may not make any sense to you that you can have a long laundry list of crazy, stupid, sinful activities, and yet when you put your faith in Jesus, he washes you clean. That may not make sense to you, and yet that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to get us to understand. Then when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, it is gone. But that's not what the world likes. That's not what the other thing is about. The other idea is like those cockroaches doing their work at night, undermining the truth of Scripture that will make some of us in the room not grab hold of Jesus and not grab hold of his freedom and not run away from our sin running towards the cross. Instead, what we want to do is have our cake and eat it too. We think that somehow we'll get a ticket just before the door shuts. There'll be some last-minute buy, some last-minute opportunity, and we'll be fine. That's not the teaching of Scripture. Now, let's be, you can go to a church not far from here, I'm sure you can, that will tell you that kind of a message. You can do whatever you want, and it doesn't matter. Let me be clear with you. They are lying to you. The Scripture is perfectly plain on this issue. What we do matters. It really does. And the Apostle Paul, by declaring that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, is not removing from us our need for responsible living in light of the grace we were given. That's not what he's doing. In fact, he's going to take the rest of the Bible and, and, and even the rest of the book of Romans to explain what it means for those of us that have been set free and don't live in condemnation. We no longer do it because there's a law telling us to. We now do it in response to the grace we've been given. If we've been loved much, we want to live with much. That's what some of us in the room need to hear. We've been cavalier with our spiritual condition. We've cheapened the grace of God. And today, I'm calling you to repentance. Repentance is you acknowledge your sin, you look in the mirror honestly, you turn and ask God to give you grace. If that's you today, man, just receive the truth, quit fighting. My pastoral heart tells me, though, that the bulk of us in this room, that's not really where we are. That's just my opinion here. My pastoral opinion tells me that what's really going on for a lot of us in this room is, is that we're doing our best to live in the grace we've been given. And we are like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. We struggle. We're torn. And our enemy, the enemy of our soul, who is the Bible calls the father of lies, comes to us and steals from us the profound truth that the Apostle Paul was trying to get people to see here. That if you're in Jesus, there is no condemnation. Condemnation isn't a word like we might typically use it today where somebody talks bad about you. No, this was the idea of a death sentence being pronounced over a criminal. Paul's point here is, is that if you're in Jesus, if you're connected to him, if you've received his grace by faith and he's washed you clean by the blood, if you have put your trust into him, then what's happened is the death sentence has been taken from you because he took it on himself. It's the idea that all of the things of your past, present, and future... The grace of God is greater than all of that. But condemnation, this cockroach that works at night, that needs darkness to operate, comes in and does its craziness in the middle of our lives sometimes. It causes us to obsess over what God has already forgiven us for. It causes us to obsess 
over our ongoing internal struggles. And instead of taking refuge in the grace of God, we get caught up with a religiousness that says, oh, I got the grace of God freely, but now it's all up to me. I've got to somehow attain, live up to, be perfect with the grace that was given to me. We believe the truth that we're set free initially, but then after that, it's pretty much up to us. These are the people that the Apostle Paul was also writing to in Romans chapter 8. Those of us in this room that receive freely the grace of God to cover our past, but then we believe it's all on our shoulders. I have good news for you today. There's no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. Oh, you did have a death sentence on you. So did I. From a theological perspective, the right thing to have happened to anybody in this room is that we would be held accountable for our shortcomings. The Bible calls them sins. They are sins that we have spoken, sins we've committed with our hands, sins we thought about. They are sins of things we did not do, we knew to do. Jesus elevated the level and the seriousness of our sin when he said, sometimes it's not even what you actively do, it's what's going on inside of your heart, even if you're somehow able to mask just how ugly your heart can be. The Bible says for those of us that put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are free from all of that. And the Apostle Paul is going to go a long way to try to convince each one of us in this room, to his original readers and for Christians throughout all of history, for as long as the Lord withholds his coming. That if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, there's no condemnation. And yet the enemy of your soul will come alongside you and remind you of all that you've done. I mean, look at, look at this craziness that he tries to perpetuate on everybody. He comes to the follower of Jesus and says, you know, you've been missing out on all the fun. I mean, you know, if you didn't have this commitment to Jesus, then you could do whatever you want. That's how it came to me, at least, when I was in my late teens and early 20s. It's because of your faith in Jesus. It's because of that strict standard. It's because of your religious heritage. And look at all the fun you're missing. Look at what everybody else is doing. And he begins to lie and speak death over us. At least it did in my life. And there would be this internal dialogue then that I would engage. It was a dialogue of lies that said that somehow I was missing out on real fun. Other people were having a better experience. Other people were going further. They didn't have to worry about integrity. They didn't have to worry about the truth. They didn't have to worry about the way they treated people. And they were somehow getting a better life. For me, the grass was greener on the other side. And on occasion, I'd give in to those lies. But he didn't stop there. Then he would come to me. And he would convince me that because I had given in to those kinds of lies, the very lies he talked me into, the very lies that I was susceptible to, then he would convince me just how ugly and how utterly destitute and how unworthy of the love of God I was anyway. Let me just ask you, don't raise your hands, because am I the only one that that's ever happened to? I know I'm not. He comes to you and convinces you to engage, and then he comes to you and tells you how terrible you are for engaging. It's, a two, it's, the, it's, the, it's the old rope-a-dope, the Muhammad Ali, it's the right-left. It's, it's the power punch of condemnation, and it's powerful in people's lives. And Paul said there has to be an embracing of this simple truth if you're going to walk in the freedom that God has for you, if you're going to walk in the power that he has for you, if you're going to walk in the love, if you're not going to be held captive to a religious list of do's and don'ts and instead be empowered by the grace of God, you've got to grab hold of this, that there is now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. And so when the enemy comes to you and whispers lies in your life, his biggest tactic is to speak a half-truth. 
a half-truth that leads to a whole death, a whole dying. He says, like, for instance, in my case, you didn't deserve the love of God anyway. And you want to know the challenge with that? He's right. I don't deserve the love of God. But rather than that truth statement of the fact that I don't deserve the love of God leading me to the appropriate place, the place of God, I need you. God's your grace. Thank you. God, forgive me for my sin. Once again, you prove to me how dependent I'm. Rather than that kind of thing coming, the cockroach of our soul comes in, does his nasty craziness on the, on the counters of our life and convinces us that while we don't deserve his grace, you shouldn't even pursue it. This is how condemnation works in the life of believers. It's built on half-truths. A truth that says, for instance, you're not good enough. You'll never amount to anything because you don't have what it takes. Half true. Can I be clear with you? Please don't be offended. You're not good enough. Neither am I. I'm not good enough to receive God's grace. I'm not good enough to grab hold of the righteousness that he provides for me in my own efforts. I can't do it. I don't measure up. I'm not even good enough to be a pastor. I'm not good enough to press into being a good husband or good father fully. All my efforts in that kind of righteousness, the Bible describes this way. It is filthy rags. It's a dirty dish rag sitting on a counter, rancid and stale. That's what my efforts to be good enough are like. And rather than that truth leading me to life that says, then cast yourself humbly at the feet of a merciful God who will never push you out, who will always receive you, what the enemy of our soul does, he works with condemnation and he begins to speak to you as well, because, because you're that way, then God could never use you. You, you, you. you don't think you qualify to be used by God, do you? This is how he lies to us. He speaks condemnation over us. The Apostle Paul wrote almost 2,000 years ago, and God's Spirit preserved it for us in the Scriptures. And for those of us that are in Christ Jesus, you're right, you aren't good enough. But it was never about that anyway, because there's no condemnation for people that aren't good enough. I mean, if you're not a good enough husband, join the club. But don't let the enemy of your soul convince you that if that is true of you, if you can't do it on your own, then somehow you're disqualified from the grace of God. Instead, let the truth of this lie propel you forward to grab hold of Jesus, to take hold of him, even as he took hold of you. No, oh, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. What this means is that if you've blown it big, I mean, if you've been an idiot, if you've disappointed people, then you're a perfect candidate to receive the grace of God. What this means for you is if you are one of those people who've committed and you fail and then you kind of make it right and, you commit and then you fail. And if, if you're one of those people that has been inconsistent at best, if you're one of those people who knows more than you do, your knowledge outpaces your obedience. Let the truth of those statements not push you away from him and not drive you to create more rules to try to live up to. Those are the lies on either side of the reality that condemnation would like you to do. Discard it because you can't live up to it or somehow try to create enough rules around it so you can live up to it. 
All I need is a few more structures and systems and I'll be fine. Those are lies. Grab hold of the center of the gospel instead that says that we put our faith and trust in Jesus. And he comes and he cleans that stuff out of our lives and doesn't hold it against us anymore. And then he begins to work with us to grow us over time, knowing, as Paul expresses in Romans chapter 7, that there will always be a struggle inside of us as long as we're on this side of heaven. We don't cling to our struggle. We don't cling to the reality of our struggle. We cling to a Jesus in the middle of our struggle. And it sets the course for us and keeps us from getting so overwhelmed we stop doing and engaging on this side. How many people have you known who've done that? It's a truth that holds us to the center and we don't then instead build so many rules and regulations and standards and we add pile and pile upon expectation trying to somehow live up to it. Both of those lead to death. Instead, we hold to the center that there is a Jesus who gave his life on the cross so that you and I, who are not perfect, who blew it, who sometimes chose to do evil, who sometimes did evil accidentally, who like to redefine because evil sounds too hard. We call it a mistake. Certainly it's not a sin. He came to us to say to us in the middle of those kinds of experiences, he brings us a grace. It's available. And if we will submit ourselves to him and grab hold of this truth, it will change everything. So that the God of the universe doesn't look at you and remembers your mistakes, your failings, your sins, your evil. He doesn't do it. There's no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm sick of the enemy coming into this church, into your life, convincing you that somehow you're disqualified, using a half-truth that resonates as true in you because you are disqualified. But then taking that half-truth and taking it in the wrong direction, side-veering it to some side road, making you believe then that you have to leave God alone or you need to stack up so many expectations and rules and try to earn it. No. It's not the way it was meant to be. And let me make it clear to you. If there's anything in what I'm saying resonating with you, you know right now 15 people that need to hear this exact same message. Some of them are following Jesus, but they have no joy. Some of them have cast out on actually participating in God's mission in this world because they feel like they're disqualified. And the reason why they're so easily gullible to these kinds of lies is because they're all built on a half-truth. But that's the way good lies work, don't, don't they? I mean, isn't that the way good lies work? I mean, when my kids are like spinning a nice yarn for me, I mean, the way I'm susceptible most is when it sounds plausible, when it sounds half true. I'd give you an example, but I don't want to sell out my kids. I've got like eight from this week. <laughs> I believe, though, I mean, when somebody comes to me and, you know, it's a far-fetched story, I don't believe, but when it sounds plausible. So when the enemy comes to you and says, you don't measure up, you know deep down that's true. But this is, where, this is where the light needs to shine because the truth of that should propel us to our knees, propel us to the cross where we find nothing but grace, nothing but the love of God. We cast ourselves humbly and we say, Father, here I am again. He says, I know. I know my grace is sufficient for you. God, I don't have what it takes he says, I know, I know, I know you don't have what it takes, but you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. God, it's too big for me. I can't get over that mountain. I know, 
I know, I know, I know, I know. And I'm still a God who moves mountains. God, I, I, I can't do this alone. I know you can't, son. I know you can't, daughter. But I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, there's no condemnation for they who are in Christ Jesus. One of the reasons why I'm talking with you about this is we stand right now on the edge of an amazing opportunity as this church. And there are a few things that we've got to get right if we're going to move forward. One of them is just how powerful our Jesus is and how important his message is. See, it's important for you to believe it, but it's not important enough for you to believe it. We have to be people who live this out and share this message with others. A couple weeks ago, Greg read for you a testimony from our stage, if you were here, about my son John. And man, as a dad, it was a red-letter day for me. My son John met a guest in kids, and Miss Heather linked them together, and John showed him his Bible, and he said something to the effect of, yeah, this Bible tells you how to make Jesus your forever friend. And that night, that guest, that first-time guest in our church told his parents that he wanted to have Jesus in his heart. And man, I thought, that's awesome. You know how that happened? It wasn't just because Jill and I are great parents, although clearly we are. <laughs> that, that's not just how it happened. See... There is a guy in the back in kids' ministry called Coach Fred. I know him as Fred. Fred's little John's small group pastor. And we get regular notes from Pastor Fred. I like to call him. He calls himself Coach Fred or just Mr. Fred. John gets notes. John got a note just a few days ago that said something like this. It said, hey, I'm so glad you're in my group. We're going to be looking at this information from the Bible. Don't forget, if you bring your Bible, you can get an extra point for the... I'm really glad you're in my group. My John loves Mr. Fred. And then as a dad, I get note. I'm so glad John's in my group. Now, I know, I know Fred. I know he doesn't just send those to me because I'm the pastor and he's trying to... That's just his heart for kids. You want to know who took the truth of Jesus and made the cockroaches scurry in my son's life? Oh, Jill and I, of course. And every teacher that's ever worked. But we've seen exponential growth in our son because of Mr. Fred. He loves coming to this church. And as a dad, I love that for my son. And we have kids in our neighborhood that were playing kickball until way after dark last night, and I'm trying to study, and they were really on my nerves, but I was so glad that they're in our neighborhood playing with my kids. And we have kids in our neighborhood who need to have somebody like a Mr. Fred in their lives. Because sometimes their parents don't have the skills, knowledge, commitment that Jill and I have. And sometimes some of the kids who come to this church, the only people that are really speaking truth of Jesus into their life, shining that light and making the cockroaches scurry, is people like the ones working in our kids' ministry. So where are you going with this, man? I'm going to be straight with you where I'm going. No apology here. Today, I need 12 more people to sign up and say, I want to be a small group pastor in kids' ministry. But don't everybody sign up, because what we're asking you to do is to make a commitment for nine months to attend one service and serve a service and invest in the life of a kid. It will make an eternal difference. Not only do we need that many people to sign up to be a small group pastor, we need that many to sign up to be assistant pastors to fill in for the few weeks that somebody can't make it. And it has to be every week virtually, almost, every three out of every four at least, so that the kids can build a rapport with those people. But you see, the thing that I'm convinced needs to happen is not that we all need to get our Jesus on, but throughout the entire system, throughout the entire scope of this church, Every person who's committed their lives to Jesus needs to have that light shine as bright as possible. And at whatever level they can understand, for whatever point in their development they are, they need to know that not only does God love them and take them, but there are people who will invest in them. That's how this church started. A group of people who said, we'll make sacrifice, we'll invest, we'll carve out time. It wasn't convenient for anybody. 
Nobody in this room who made this church happen said, oh, the easiest thing I'll ever do is give my time, resources, money, and prayer and emotion to this ugly, messy thing called church. That's not how it happened at all. It never happens that way with God. It's a group of people that says, Jesus changed my life. I can't do anything else. I don't earn it with him. I just want to live my life in response to him. And you know it was beautiful for all of us that have done that? You couldn't, there isn't a single person in this room and there's no lie of the enemy that would ever take that experience away from us. Because not only did we get to do it and see fruit from it, our lives were changed in the process. You know, I, I talked briefly to, to Mr. Fred about what he's doing back there, and I know this about him. Last time we had dinner get together, he told me this. You want to know who the biggest and the best and the most sensitive and the most learning student is in his group? You want to know who that is? It's not John. It's Mr. Fred. See, as he gets his heart ready, as he prepares, as he connects, God grows him up. Some of you are living a lifeless spiritual life because you believe the lies of the enemy that you're no longer qualified. And it's a half-truth you're not. But then you've let it cause you to disengage or become hypercritical instead of casting yourself mercifully at his feet and engaging his mission in the world so that more people would do it. I wonder, is there anybody in this room that would say, the amount of time I spend on Facebook is not near as important as if I would take that time and invest it in the life of a kid. A couple of hours a week. Yeah, that's called a hard sale, unapologetically, because it's worth it. We're getting ready to significantly grow, and our kids' ministry is understaffed. And we need small group leaders who will serve every week and then attend a service or attend a service and serve every week. Because if you don't at least come and get fed and worship together, you're going to burn out. You gotta, you gotta grow. The other thing that's gonna happen, and I'm gonna tell you this story next week when I get full confirmation, is, is we've had a lot of movement around what's gonna be happening in the life of this church as it relates to our facilities, long term and short term. And the Holy Spirit moved in my heart this week in a profound way. And God has opened a door for us, I'm gonna tell you about next week. It's gonna rock your world. But in order to be ready for that, we've got to take a couple steps. We have a capital campaign in our future. So all of you that are skirmy and squirrely and lack manliness and don't want to grow up spiritually, go ahead and leave. Because I just said we're going to raise some money. I understand. But we're going to do this for the mission of Jesus. About $1.5 million over the next 30 months. So go ahead. When we start singing, I'm going to stand up. Y'all go ahead and exit. That's how it always works. I get it. No, font, no problem. But there's a core group of us that are hardcore committed to making sure that the message of Jesus goes forth. That's coming later. But right now, we have an Easter challenge in front of us. So I'm looking you in the eye and saying, some of you need to step up in serving kids. And some of you need to step up and write a pretty significant check over the next few weeks. We have a $50,000 goal that I'm going to tell you about next week. I'm telling you about the goal now, but I'm going to tell you about where that's going. And it's the first little wave of this massive amount of change that's happening around here. It's going to be crazy good. God is going to use it powerfully. People's lives are going to be changed. But you know who's going to get changed more than anybody else? I'm just, I'm just going to predict this for you. Right here, bro. Right here. I'm going to get changed more than anybody else. That's why I'm so excited to do this. So what I'm going to ask you to do right now is grab your Connect card. I'm going to give you a little insight to where we're headed here, all right? Well, insight. I'm wondering if there's anybody who uh, will commit to Next Step Bay, which I haven't even preached about at all. <clears throat> I just kind of mentioned it at the end. It says, I think the Lord is calling me to be a small group leader in Four Corners Kids. Now, here, here's who you are. You're the ones who, as I said that, you said, yeah, somebody should do that. I wish my kid had somebody like that in their lives. <laughs> it's probably you. You could give nine months. And, you know, oh, I'm not even sure if I like kids. So what? 
Honestly, so what? Doesn't really matter. Can you be pleasant for a little while? And can you take not the lesson you have to teach, but the lesson that was taught and just talk to kids? Can you just say like Pastor Fred does to, 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 to my kid, hey, John, what happened in your week? Don't think Fred's a weakling. Fred is a business owner who does his own work, been very wildly successful. He and his wife have been in this church from day one. He's as busy as anybody here. In fact, if Fred didn't commit his time to this, he could commit more time to earning more money. And he's been very good at doing that. But he carves this out because it feeds his soul and it benefits other people. Is that you at all? Could you carve out some time? How about next step B? I can't commit to a serve one, attend one, Ben, but I could, I could come in regularly and be a part. Maybe my schedule doesn't allow me to do it that much, but I could be a regular part. And then when the, the leader has to be gone, I could fill in on occasion. And if I couldn't fill in, at least I could be there so we keep a good ratio of at least two people in each group. And that's me. I could at least do that for nine months. Check that box. Here's next step C. Ben, I, I don't know what you're talking about with this Easter thing, but I'm committed to what God's doing in the church. If you're not, just wait. We'll fill you in. And I'm going to bring a sacrificial offering on or before Easter to help with this transition. $50,000 is going to change two kids' ministries. We're going to completely wow Zion Global in their kids' ministry. They're meeting right now underneath us. That's unacceptable. We're going to completely change their ministry. We're going to bless them. We're going to do for others what we want God to do for us. We built a church in India. We're now going to take a kid's ministry and put it on steroids. We're going to change their lives in about three weeks. But in order to do that, we've got to have some money. So if you want to commit to that, check the box. We'll send you encouragement. And next step, D. Ben, I'm going to come help work on this building beginning this Wednesday. And if you have a special skill, electrical, carpenter, you know, drywall, cleaner, whatever, work of the yard, put that down. If not, just check the box and we'll send you information. Beginning Wednesday at 10 a.m., we're going to start working on this church around the clock through next Sunday. It's going to be crazy good. If you don't want to, you know, miss it, if you don't want to be uh, on the outside, check the box. We'll send the info. And then you just got to make some time to come. So a little cryptic today, on purpose. We'll fill you in next week. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you so much for your grace. God, I want to thank you that you you fed me this week through your word that there is no condemnation for they who are in Christ Jesus. God, thank you for what you're doing in the life of our church. Raise up leaders. Dispel the lies of the enemy that says that we're disqualified. And God, do your profound work in us and through us and among us. And we'll give you glory. I pray it all in your powerful name. Amen and amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's sing together.